So how would you answer this question? What does it mean to follow Jesus? You've got an answer. I'm sure you're certain your answer's right. What does it mean to follow Jesus? Here's what I find interesting. You assume that you know what that means. And you assume that you're correct. I would assume the same thing. But one of the things I've discovered over the years is, this is a little bit interesting, if I had the opportunity right now to take a microphone and to walk around and just ask random people in the crowd, and I went through all the rows and I asked you all, you would be amazed at the number of people who gave an answer to this question that was different than yours. And you would sit there thinking, how could so many people be wrong? Because again, you're sure you're right about that, right? It's just interesting because so many people think so many different things about what it means to follow Jesus. I'll tell you what this does not mean. This does not mean that you've just checked a few boxes off the list and you've gotten everything covered that your church told you. If you grew up in church as a kid, your church told you you should do. It's way more than, well, I prayed a prayer to receive Christ or I accept His forgiveness or I got saved, whatever terminology your church used. It's way more than that. It's way more than, well, okay, I did that and I got baptized, so check, check. I think that's pretty much all you have to worry about. I've taken the steps of faith I need to take. Now I can move on. No, that, that is not what this means at all. That, that, those things are a small part of it. But when you think, oh, it's just doing a couple things, I check it off the list and now I'm good. Or I show up at church every now and then, check, okay, I think I'm good. No, you're viewing this as a transactional thing if you think that way. And maybe that's how you've been taught it is. It's just transactional. There are a few things you got to get lined up and taken care of with God. And once you get all that done, well, you just kind of go on about your business and you're good to go. But this is not transactional. Jesus, when he showed up on this earth, he taught it was relational. It was relational, which means all of us, no matter where we are, all of us have another step of faith we can take because in relationships, there's always a next step and a next opportunity to demonstrate trust in and to somebody. So this is relational. Jesus said, no, no, it's not transactional. There's always something else you can do to follow. So what does it mean to follow him? Or another way to think of it is, how do you know if you're doing that? And how do you know if you're doing it well? Well, in the first century, there was a word that they used to describe people who followed well. It wasn't a word that Jesus originated, but Jesus took it and redefined it in some ways. It was a word that was common in the first century. It's not so common today. The word was disciple. People who followed someone well, they were called a disciple. And then Jesus came along, and Jesus said, I want to redefine what this word disciple means. And in just a minute, I want to read you his definition of a disciple. Now, here's the thing. If you're not a Christian, you don't consider yourself a church person, wherever you are and all that, this is what Jesus is about to say and, and how he's going to define this. The expectations he set for people who follow him they don't apply to you. He didn't expect you to live up to these expectations because you're not even at a point where you trust him enough to follow him. But here's what I'm going to predict. As we begin to read what Jesus said, you're going to think to yourself, that is right at the heart of what frustrates me so much about church or what frustrates me so much about Christians. And if, if they would just do what Jesus said to do, I don't think I would have as big of a problem with them as I do because this is at the heart of what it really means to follow and to follow well. And it was such a big deal to Jesus that on the night of his arrest, now just imagine this, he knows his arrest is coming that night. And just a few hours before, as he's sitting at dinner and then having a conversation after dinner with his closest disciples, there were 12 of them there, and then Judas you know, leaves, and Jesus knows Judas is going to betray him, so there are 11 left. And Jesus only has a short amount of time to communicate something to them before everything changes. And guess what he decides to communicate? 
he decides to circle back and explain to them again what it means to follow him well because he knew they didn't get it, and he knew we were going to have a hard time getting it as well. Here's what he said. A new command I give you. He's sit, sitting around the dinner table with them, okay? He says, lean in, lean in. A new command I give you to which they're all going, oh, oh my goodness. They're, they all grew up in Judaism. They had over 600 different commands, so they're thinking, I'm not sure we need a new one, but it's Jesus, so we'll listen. What's your new command? And then he says, love one another. Love one another. And I'm guessing, I'm reading between the lines, but I'm guessing that they thought the same thing we all think. That is not a new command. That is just normal. It's not new at all. It's normal. It's normal. Everybody loves other people. There's nothing special about that. As a matter of fact, people who aren't even followers of Jesus love other people. So anybody can love one another. I don't know why Jesus would get hung up on this. It's not that big of a deal. But Jesus says, no, 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 wait. I'm not talking about loving one another the way you love one another because that way is easy. Everybody does that. It's natural. I'm talking about loving one another in a supernatural way. Way And here's how he defines what it means to love one another in terms of this new command that he gave. Listen to this. He said, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. Now, I'm thinking at this point, all the guys in the room, the 11 of them, I'm thinking they looked at each other and basically said, oh no, oh no. Because they had spent the last three years of their lives watching Jesus love them. And it was a kind of love that was so sacrificial. It was a kind of love that cost Jesus so much. They weren't sure they wanted to step into loving other people that way. They had constant conversations about why Jesus would do what he did. See, they had, they had watched him serve them, not when it was convenient for Jesus. They had watched him serve them and love them in a way that cost him dearly. They had watched him, and they knew that serving and loving people wasn't something Jesus did from time to time. Like, okay, I can do it here, and, well, I think I haven't served anybody in a while, so Jesus will go do it. No, no, no. They knew this was who Jesus was. That, in other words, Jesus' life, they'd seen this for three years, Jesus' life did not revolve around himself, and he served and loved and served and loved and helped when it was convenient. They knew Jesus' life didn't revolve around him. It revolved around everybody else. That it, your life's not supposed to be centered on you. It's supposed to be centered on the you beside you. They'd seen this. They had seen Jesus not just show up and say, hey, you ought to serve, but do it in a way that none of them would have. They had watched Jesus not just teach, you should love your enemies. He'd actually love the people who considered him their enemy. And they knew, they knew, they were about to watch Jesus literally lay down his life for them. So when he says, no, let me redefine this for you. I don't want you to love one another the way people just naturally love one another. I want you to love one another the way I've loved you. Okay, that carried a price tag that was a little too steep. That carried a level of commitment that was a little more than most people want to give, including those 11 guys in the room. But Jesus says, if you're going to follow me well, this is what you have to learn how to do. And then he redefines disciple around this idea of loving others the way Jesus has loved us. He goes on, he says, by this, everyone will know that you're my disciples. If, it's a choice, you don't have to do it. You may choose not to do it. But they'll know that you're a follower of me if you love one another the way I have loved you. What's so interesting about this is Jesus never 
assumed or expected people to know we follow him based on the things we choose today. See, we, we are like, well, I go to church, so people know that I follow Jesus because I'm showing up at church. He didn't say anything about that. He said, no, no, they're not going to know that you follow me well because your mama was a Christian, your grandmama was a Christian. It has nothing to do with, well, you go to church or pray before your meals. It had nothing to do with the fact that, oh, well, you know, you got this Bible verse hanging on your wall, so everybody's going to know you're Christian. Look at the Bible verse. No, Jesus said it has a lot more to do with what you're doing down the hall than what's hanging on your wall. It has a lot more to do with the way you treat that person that's hard to love and that person who's getting on your nerves and that person who just undercut you and that person who just betrayed you and that person who just went around, you know, behind your back. It has a lot more to do with the way you respond to people than it does anything else. And this is at the heart of what those of us who follow Jesus, what we struggle with, isn't it? Let's just be honest. And this is, if you're not a Christian, this is what frustrates you about us so much. And I get it, and I wouldn't even argue with you. I would agree with you. See, as followers of Jesus, we are much better at talking about Jesus than we are at actually loving people like Jesus. That's our problem. Most of us have no problem talking about Jesus but we don't love people like Jesus very well. That costs us too much. It doesn't cost us a lot, especially in our area, to talk about Jesus. Well, you can do that. But to actually love people the way Jesus has loved us, that's an entirely different ballgame. But that is central to what it means to follow Jesus and to follow him well. There's another instance where one of the religious professionals of Judaism, the Jewish religion they practice at the time, one of these religious professionals came to Jesus, and he asked him a question. If you grew up in church, you've heard this. He said, hey, Jesus, we have over 600 different commands or laws in Judaism. I'd love for you to narrow it down. Could you just tell me what you consider to be the most important command? Like, if we're going to do one thing, what's the one thing we should do? And here's what Jesus said to him. You should love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. And that was not surprising to anybody in the crowd. Well, of course, we should just love God. We should work on loving God. Okay, I'm good with that. But Jesus didn't stop there. And this is what surprised everybody. He said, and the second is like it. In other words, I'm about to give you a second command that's just as important as the first. Matter of fact, it's just like the first. The second is like it. You should love your neighbor as yourself. To which they went, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I thought this was all about what was happening vertically between me and God. Like, I got the I should love God part. They have the same mentality most of us have. Well, as long as everything's good between me and God, then I think everything's good. So you have your own filter. I don't know what it is. But whenever you think about, is everything good between me and God, there are some things you run through real quick in your head. Am I showing up at church enough? Am I praying enough? Am I... You know, serving people every now and then or giving a little bit here and there. I don't know what your filter is, but you've got one. And for most people who follow Jesus still to this day, we assume as long as everything is good between me and God, then everything's good. And Jesus said, no, 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 you missed it. What is central to following me is not a vertical relationship. It's a horizontal one. In other words, what he taught right there is this, that you should love God and love people, but the way you love God is by loving people the way Jesus has loved us. You see, if it's all about just loving God, well, that's really easy because nobody can see and tell whether I love God. You can't see into my heart, can you? So you have no idea if I really love God well or I don't. As long as I'm going through a few motions, you just assume I am. Jesus said, that's not how you tell if you're following me well. The way you can tell if you're following me well is just look at how you're treating the people all around you. If you're loving them the way I have loved you, okay, you're doing a good job. If not, you've got some room to grow. 
And most of us have a lot of room to grow, don't we? It's not just about this. It's about this. That's what's central to the faith. So, Jesus leaves this earth. And his early followers, guys like Matthew, Luke, Peter, Paul, John, these guys begin writing letters to groups of Christians who begin following Jesus in all these different parts of the, their part of the world. We call it the New Testament. It's just a collection of documents they wrote. And guess what? When you begin to read all their writings, you know what you discover? All of their writings are basically this. They're how to love one another the way Jesus has loved us. That's all the New Testament is. It is all commentary. It is all a how-to on how to love your neighbor as yourself. Because all of these early leaders and followers of Jesus, they were convinced of this, that the primary activity of the church is to one another, one another. That the primary activity of the church is to figure out how to love one another the way Jesus had loved them. Now, I'll explain what I mean by this in just a second. But I don't want you to miss this. Because they thought very differently about following Jesus than most of us do. They didn't believe the primary activity of the church was to show up and sit in rows and listen to somebody like me speak. Now, they wrote about that a little bit. A little bit. But not a lot. And they wrote about, you should pause and celebrate communion and... Remember what Jesus did for you in his sacrifice? They wrote about that a little bit, but you know what? They didn't give hardly any details. They didn't tell us how often we should do it. They didn't tell us exactly what manner we should do it. There were very few details about that. They talked about, you know, when you come together, you should sing. You know, you should do that. But they gave very few details. They didn't talk about how long you should sing, how many songs, you know, the kind of music. They didn't talk about, you know, how loud or how soft the music should be. They didn't give any details about it. They talked a little bit about the teaching and the importance of the teaching, but they gave practically zero details about the teaching. They didn't talk about, well, here's the style it ought to be, and here's the approach that the teacher ought to take, and here's how long those sermons ought to be. They didn't talk about any of that. Matter of fact, about the only detail we have about the teaching is Luke tells us that one time, the Apostle Paul, Paul is teaching a group of people, and he teaches for so long, and he goes so long into the night, that there's a guy sitting in the window of a third floor a third floor window of a building. And Paul went so long that he put the guy to sleep, the guy fell out of the window and died. That's the detail we have about the sermon. So, by the way, in case you're wondering, I just try to keep my talk south of that, okay? I figure as long as nobody gets physically injured listening to me, we're good. It may be emotional pain, I don't know. But as long as it's not physical pain, you're in pretty good shape. I mean, there, there are so few details about all this stuff that we have made central. You know what they spent practically all of their time writing about how to one another one another how to what it looked like to love one another the way Jesus has loved us that's all they wrote about if you will begin to read the new testament and think of it from that perspective everything will make sense to you everything will make sense to you they gave dozens and dozens of examples of here's what it looks like to love that person the way Jesus has loved you I'll give you just a few of them real quick. All of these writers, if you read their different writings, all of them talk about the importance of forgiving one another. That, why? Because they knew there were going to be people in your life and in my life who betray us in some way, who hurt us in some way, where there's a gap, they break trust in some way. And so they said, you know what? If you're going to love people like Jesus, you've got to forgive. 
And just like us, there were people going, were going, yeah, but you don't understand my situation and what went on. And they're like, no, 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 it doesn't matter. You should forgive unconditionally because, this is what they believed, because you have been unconditionally forgiven. That's how Jesus loved you. He forgave you when you didn't deserve it. So you turn around and you forgive unconditionally. They talked about accepting one another. In other words, they said, we know you're going to find yourself in relationships with people that are hard to accept. We know you're going to find yourself in situations and relationships with people where you want to tell them all the things they need to change in order to be a part of your group or in order to have a relationship with you or in order to continue to be friends. They said, no, 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 you don't do that. You don't do that. You should accept people unconditionally. Wait a minute, why? Because you have been unconditionally accepted by your Heavenly Father. He accepted you before you changed anything. You should do the same. They talked a lot about caring for one another. That whenever you saw people in your life, in your circle, saw people at work, saw people you know, in your community who were hurting, that as a follower of Jesus, your job was not to stand back and offer support just in the form of words. Your, your job was not just to say, oh, I'll be praying for them. That your job was to step into and lean into those situations and actually do something. Actually take action. Actually show care in a very tangible way. And again, people would go, well, yeah, but I got my own things going on. Why should I do that? And Paul would say, and Peter would say, and John would say, well, you do that because that's exactly what Jesus did for you. He stepped into your world and he stepped into your mess and he stepped into your pain. And he's cared for you. And see, Peter had experienced that. John had experienced that. Matthew had experienced that. So they, they couldn't really say anything. They were like, oh, you're right. You're right. We watched it. We experienced it. They would all write about the importance of encouraging one another. That you should walk alongside people. And when they have successes, you should cheer them on. And when they're struggling with things, you should encourage them and push them and challenge them and, you know, applaud them as they keep doing the right thing even when it's tough. Because they knew, one, they knew everybody needed some encouragement. But they also knew this is exactly what Jesus had done for them. It was love in a very practical form. One of the things they wrote about that was so countercultural in their day, and it is in our day too, they all wrote about submitting to one another. Now, this is the idea of we before me. It was so countercultural to them, more so even than it is today. Because they grew up in a world where you looked out for yourself first and foremost, and where everybody, as far as they were concerned, did not have the same value. Women did not have the value of men. Children didn't have the value of women or men. And so there was no way they were going to submit to one another. The person with the power, the person with the might, in this case, in that first century world, the men, they held everything in their hands. So other people needed to submit to them, but they weren't going to submit to other people. And Jesus comes along and says, nope, I'm demonstrating a whole new way. And so his first followers are writing going, uh, we got a totally different culture here. There's a different way we love people. It doesn't matter that that's a woman. It doesn't matter that that's a child. You submit to them, which just means... It's we before me. You're supposed to put the interests and needs and desires of that person before your own. Doesn't matter it's a woman. Doesn't matter it's a child. Doesn't matter it's someone of a different race. Doesn't matter it's somebody you disagree with. Your job, if you're going to love them like Jesus loved you, is to submit 
Because that's exactly, and this is the argument they would make in their writings. They would say, this is exactly what Jesus did for us. The one who most deserved to be served came to serve instead. The one who didn't need to step on this planet instead walked right into the middle of our painful planet. And he put our needs and interests above his own. He submitted to us. So we submit to one another because we have experienced one who submitted to us. A couple others. They talked about this one all the time. The importance of bearing with one another as a way to love one another. Now, here's what I love about this. They, they weren't trying to gloss things over and make it look like this was easy. They knew. They said, you're going to find yourself in rooms with people you disagree with and in rooms with people you don't like and in rooms with people who just get on your nerves. In rooms with people you'd rather be anywhere but with them. And what it looks like to love them like Jesus loved you is you bear with them in spite of the fact you disagree. You bear with them in spite of the fact that you can't stand what they stand for. You bear with them anyway. It was like they could look ahead. It was going on in their world, and in our world, it's the same thing. They just knew. There were going to be moments where Republicans and Democrats ended up in the same room together. And you don't, you know, go to your separate sides and ding, 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 let the battle begin. No, you figure out how to bear with one another and learn from one another and love one another even though you don't agree on anything. They knew there'd be moments where artists and accountants had to work together, where extroverts and introverts had to work together. So he said, no, when you run into people who are so different than you and you don't agree with anything they agree, you don't stand for anything they stand for, your job is to love them anyway. It's to, I love this, just to bear with them. You don't walk away from them. It's not easy, they said. It's going to be tough, but you just bear with one another anyway. And then they wrote a lot about this, the idea of restoring one another. That there were going to be moments when the people in your life drifted and disappointed you. They fell and they failed you. And in those moments, here's what these writers would say. The way you love them like Jesus has loved you is you don't criticize them. You don't write them off. You don't look at them and say, I'm done with you. You don't go gossip about them to other people. No. You actually walk alongside them in their lowest points. And you're there when nobody else is there. And you say, I'm here to help. If you want to get back on track, I'll help you get back on track. If you want to navigate through all the consequences you've created, I'll be here to encourage and support you and walk with you along the way. This is what it looked like. And the reason, and you can keep reading, there are dozens of these examples in the New Testament if you want to read it for yourself. The reason they kept talking about this is because they had experienced this from Jesus. And when he said, I'm going to give you a new command, you've got to love one another from this point on like I've loved you. They knew exactly what that looked like. They had experienced it. Jesus hadn't just taught it. He had shown it. And they couldn't get away from it. And to this day, this is to be the central activity of the church. This is how Jesus designed it. Church isn't supposed to be about people sitting in rows listening to somebody like me speak. That's just a little part of it. That's a means to an end. No, it's to be a group of people who love people the way Jesus has loved them. That's the church. It's a group of people. It's a movement, a gathering of people who have learned or are learning how to love people the way Jesus loves them. That's what it looks like. So the question is, well, how do you learn to do that? Again, I'm going to tell you, you don't learn to do that by sitting in rows listening to me speak. You don't. 
because you have no idea what's going on in the lives of the people sitting in front of you or behind you. You don't know what's happening in their world. You don't know if they need encouragement. You wouldn't even know how to encourage them. You don't know if they need forgiveness. You're not in their world. They haven't done anything to you. You don't know if they're at a point in their life where they need to experience unconditional acceptance and you're not in there enough to show it anyway. You don't, you're not in situations to submit to one another. Yeah, I mean, we could go on and on. If you're just sitting in a row, you never get a chance to practice this with the people around you because you don't know what's happening in their world. Now, when you show up here every week, you get one anothered a lot. You may not realize this, and you don't see all the people who do it for you. But we have hundreds of volunteers who one another you and make sure you feel loved and you're served well when you come here. And if you have kids, right now you've got preschoolers who are being one anothered by some amazing volunteers and elementary kids and middle school kids. And then we have high school uh, volunteers who do it with high school kids. Like, you experience and receive a lot of one anothering, but there's no way for you to offer one anothering to anybody sitting in a row. It just doesn't work. So how do you learn how to do it? Well, these writers would talk about this often. It wasn't the only step you had to take, but they would often write about the first and foundational step you have to take and I have to take if we're going to learn to love people the way Jesus has loved us. And here's what they said. They would say that you can't love one another without doing life with one another. They wrote about this often. You actually can't learn to love other people the way Jesus has loved you unless you're doing life with them. And what I mean by that is, unless you have a small circle of people outside of your family that you are invested in and committed to over a period of time. Now, here's why that's true. Because outside of your family, what group of people are you so committed to that when it gets hard to love them, when it gets tough, when things get rocky you know you're not going to walk away. You can't walk away. Most of us have nobody outside of family. And anybody can love family this way. But it takes something special. It takes something supernatural to learn to love all the other people in our lives this way. Because when it gets too tough, you can lean away. When it gets too tough, you can walk away. They knew this. So they were constantly inviting the people they wrote to, hey, hey, you got to you got to commit to and invest in a small circle of people that becomes a laboratory, if you will, where you practice what it looks like to forgive, to accept, to care, to encourage, to submit, to bear with, to restore. A group of people that you've committed to enough, you just can't walk away. They're not going to let you. They're going to help you learn how to love, and you're going to help them learn how to love. And when you get it wrong, you're just going to own it and admit it and keep working at it. Most of us, outside of family, we don't have any group of people like that. We don't. And some of you are thinking, well, I don't need anybody because I have my family. I'm just telling you. You can't fully learn how to love people like Jesus because family's not optional. You wish it was sometimes, but they're not optional, are they? The way you really learn how to love people like Jesus is when you are loving the people Jesus loved. People that it's optional for you not to love and you're choosing to do it anyway over the long run. So they talked repeatedly about this. Because they knew, again, this is a means to an end, but church doesn't happen in rows. You don't learn to love people sitting in rows. It happens in circles. Now, if you've been around here very long, you hear me from time to time talk about the idea that we believe circles are better than rows because of the kind of growth that can happen in circles that can't happen just sitting here listening to me. 
Let me explain it this way. Circles are better than rows for this reason because it takes intentional relationships to grow. It takes intentional relationships to grow. This is why circles are better than rows. Now, I don't even have to convince you of this because you do this in every area of your life except your spiritual world. I'll explain what I mean by that. If you're a student, when you get in a class and you begin to struggle with a class or with a subject, what do you do? You do not just show up to a random group of people in the class and hope that by osmosis you're going to pick it up and figure it out. No, if it really means something to you to grow and get better in that area, you actually go and find a tutor. You find somebody who's better at it than you are, and you begin to meet with them. You develop an intentional relationship with someone who's going to help you grow in that class. If you're a mom, think about this. When you became a first-time mom, what did you do? You didn't just hang out with moms at the park and hope that you just happened to pick up some good ideas to be a better mom. No, you were scared to death. You didn't know what you were doing. You were afraid you were going to do something wrong. So you found some moms who were a little further down the road than you, and you developed some intentional relationships. I'm going to learn from that mom and that mom and that mom, and you just kept asking them questions and letting them help you grow. If you're an athlete, you do this all the time. If you're an athlete and you want to get better as an athlete at whatever sport you're in, you don't just show up to the gym or show up to the field and assume you'll just pick it up on your own. You have a coach. You have a very intentional relationship with someone who is invested in and committed to helping you grow, and you're invested in and committed to learning from them. If you're a business leader, you do this. When you're trying to figure out how to go to the next level with your business and you're not sure what to do or you're not sure how to lead that team or solve that problem, you don't just hang out with a random group of people and assume that you'll find the answer. You go find somebody further down the road, you develop an intentional relationship, and you ask very specific questions to grow. We do this in every area of life, and then we come to our spiritual life and our relationship with God, and we assume that if we show up and sit in rows that we'll just somehow catch it. It's not how it works. It's not how God designed for it to work. It's not about rows. It is about circles. And one of the things that concerns me, and one of the things that you're going to hear me beat this drum over the course of the fall because it's this big of a deal to me, I am concerned because there is a large group of you who have chosen to be satisfied going no further than a row on Sunday morning. You haven't taken a step to develop a habit of serving you haven't taken a step to get in a small group. You haven't taken a step to connect with anybody else that can help you grow. You haven't taken a step to connect with anybody who you can help grow. You're just content to come in. It's kind of like a spectator. It's an event, and you're going to, you know, hopefully the music's good and the message isn't okay, and, you know, you don't fall asleep, and then you're out, and, okay, I got something good. Well, that was nice. That made me feel good. That was inspirational. And you're out the door as soon as we say you're dismissed. And I'm not knocking you, but I'm telling you, I'm concerned for this reason. Because you can't be a great follower of Jesus if you're content to stop at rows. It just won't, it's impossible. It just won't happen. you got to be in some circles with some intentional relationships that help you grow. And over the course of the last few weeks, I continue to be reminded of this. As I get email after email and phone call after phone call from people 
who are going through situations in their life where they need support, they need encouragement, or they just need answers, they just need another perspective, and they have nobody. They have nobody. They come and they sit here in a row on Sunday, and I'm so glad they do. But they have nobody. So they reach out to us at the office for support, for encouragement. And we do the very best we can do, but I'm going to tell you right now, you're never going to get it as good as you would if you had a group of people you had committed to do life with. Because you can't learn to love one another unless you're doing life with a few together. So here's what I want to invite you to do. If you're not in a circle, if all you do is come sit in a row, I want to invite you to take a step into a circle. I want to invite you to take a step and explore. I'm not asking for a long-term commitment. I just want you to take four weeks, four weeks, to explore what it might be like to be in a circle with a group of people where together you start figuring out what it looks like to love one another. Here's what that's going to mean. It means you're going to be in a group of eight to ten people. And you get to pick what kind of people they are. You get to pick, do I, if you're married, I'm going to be in a group with other married people. Or I'm single and I want to be in a group with single people. Or I, I want to be in a men's group or I want to be in a women's group. You get to pick. But for four weeks, we want to put, help you get that group of people that you can meet with and you can, you'll show up, eat something, get to know each other a little bit, watch a short video that talks about what it means to love people like Jesus that loves you. You can talk about it and discuss it, share your thoughts on it just for four weeks. Now, at the end of that four weeks, here's what we're going to ask you. We're going to ask you, was that meaningful and was that helpful? Was that meaningful and was that helpful? And if it was, and if you enjoyed that group of people, then you are going to have the opportunity to continue to meet with them over the course of the next 12 to 24 months. That's up to you. If it wasn't, you can quit. You're done. You're out. No hard feelings. But here's what I know. If you would just give it a shot, you would find it to be extraordinarily meaningful. And that's just not my personal opinion. We have the data to back it up. Six months ago, we did a survey of all the people who are currently in groups in our church. And by the way, if you're not in a group, you're in the minority. The majority of people are in a group. So we surveyed all of them, and we asked them about their experience. Was it helpful? Was it meaningful? And here were the results we got back. It was an anonymous survey. 96% of group participants said they were satisfied with their group experience. 96%. I was blown away by that. You can't get 96% of people in America today to agree on the color of the sky. Have you noticed that? But 96% of the people in the group said, we find it helpful and we find it meaningful. So I'm, I'm pretty confident if you would try it for four weeks, you would say, oh, I didn't even know I was missing this. This is incredibly helpful. This is worth my time. So I want to invite you to try it. And I know what you're thinking. Well, I'm too busy and my schedule's crazy and I got all this stuff going on and, you know, I just don't have time. Okay, I, I get all that. Let me give you a quick tip, by the way. I would suggest that you not say that out loud to all the people in groups at our church. Because basically what you're communicating is, see, I have a life and I got a lot going on. Apparently y'all don't. That's why you have time for groups. So I wouldn't say that out loud. No, because all the people around you in groups, they have just as much going on as you do. I have just as much going on as you do. Here's what I know. Let's be honest. You make time for what's important to you. You make time for what you think is meaningful. So you get to decide whether this is going to be something you want to do or not. But if you think it's meaningful, you'll find a way to do it. 
So I want you to take that step. You say, oh, I got kids, man. I don't know what to do with my kids. Well, guess what? We think this is so important to you and your spiritual growth that we pay you back for any cost you have for childcare while you're at your group. We pay you back. We don't, we don't want, this, want you to do this because we want something from you. We get nothing from you when you get in a group. This costs us money. We'll just pay you back. You'll never be out of dime for child care. We do this because we want something for you. So if you're willing to step into a circle for four weeks and try to form some intentional relationships to help you grow, the easiest way to do that is to sign up for an event we're about to do called Group Link. We do this a few times a year. Group Link uh, this fall is going to be Monday, August 27th. It's going to be at 7 p.m. right here down in the Murray Room. All you have to do to sign up is go to trygroups.com. Trygroups.com. You can sign up in 30 seconds and you'll be ready to go. Here's what's going to happen at Group Link. You'll get an email before Group Link that says, hey, we've got a group of people we think you're going to connect with. Here's who they are. We want you to show up at 7 o'clock and meet your group. So you'll get to show up and meet your group, and if that's a group that works for you, great. If not, we'll help you find another one. You'll be here for an hour or less. You'll decide as a group, well, here's where we're going to meet. We're going to meet at this coffee shop, and this is when we're going to meet. Or somebody is usually like, why don't you just meet at my house for the four weeks? You know, whatever. You find a place to meet. You'll settle on the time and all that. And for four weeks, you'll get together, and you'll get to know each other. You'll watch a short video. You'll talk about what it means to love people the way Jesus has loved you. But you will start the process of developing some intentional relationships to help you grow. Now, I stand up here at least once a year, and usually more than once a year, and I talk about this. And I'm really talking about to the same group of you, to the group of you who have yet to take that step, to which you may be thinking, why do you keep doing this? I've actually had people look at me and say, I'm never going to go in a group, so you might as well quit asking. I'm not going to go in a group. I'm like, thank you. I'm going to talk about it again anyway, because... I don't want anything from you, but I do want something for you. And I've been fortunate enough for most of my life, I was taught this early, to be in a circle, not just a row. And I want to tell you something. I would not be where I am today. I wouldn't have handled the situations I've had in my life as well. And while I've still got a long way to go, I wouldn't have learned to love people as well as I do if it hadn't have been for those circles. There's no way I would have learned it sitting in a row. It's been those intentional relationships over time that have helped me learn what it means to follow Jesus well. It has been the secret sauce. And those have been the people who have shown up for me when I needed somebody. If you ask me what's going on in most of your lives, I don't have a clue. Because we don't sit and talk about it in a circle. If you ask me what's going on in the lives of the guys in my circle, I know exactly what's going on in their world. I can tell you exactly what they're struggling with, exactly what they're excited about. If you ask me, well, Matt, whenever something happens and you need some help, who do you turn to? Who's going to show up when you go through a tough time? I know exactly who's going to show up. If you ask me, who do you call when you need, I know, I'll tell you. Here's exactly who I call. Because we have intentionally chosen to develop that kind of relationship. That's what I want for you. Because over the next year, you're going to need that at some point. And I know you're never going to learn to follow Jesus well, and you're never going to learn to love one another like he has loved you if you don't do life with a few. Church doesn't happen in rows. It happens in circles. 
So will you develop some intentional relationships to grow? Just like you do in every other area of your life, will you do it in your relationship with Jesus? Will you do it for your spiritual life? Because you can't love one another without doing life with one another. We need to learn from each other. Let me pray for us. Father, for the people who this is exactly what they've been looking for, this is, they know this is exactly what they need. Thanks that they're going to take this step and sign up for Group Link and be intentional about developing some of these relationships. But for the people who are um, sitting there, especially the guys, I'm, I know how we are, for the guys who are going, nope, no way I'll ever do that. Don't need it. I'm good. Would you give us enough wisdom to be able to see and look a little past today and realize there may be a moment where we're going to need it? And would you also give us enough wisdom to realize that by refusing to develop those relationships, we keep other people from growing and learning from our experiences? So help us not to live our lives centered around ourselves. God, help us to live focused on the you beside you, on the person beside me, and to intentionally invest in some relationships that will help us learn how to love better, help us learn how to lead better, help us learn how to follow you better. Because we really do believe following you, when we learn to do it well, it leads to a better life, and it makes us better at life. And that's all I want for them. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.